is called Grace When I Fall. We will be taking this from Psalm 51. This will be part one of our study. Could you please rise from your seats as we read together Psalm 51. For the choir director, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you with thanksgiving in our hearts. Indeed, we are grateful for grace. For without grace, we are nothing. And we thank you, O God, that this grace is something that we have experienced not only when we became born again, but even before we were born again, we were recipients of your common grace. And right now, as we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives, we have experienced even more of that abundant grace. That abundant grace that in your covenant faithfulness you have poured out upon your people. And we are forever grateful. And we are forever thankful, O God, for all the things that you have showered in our lives. And we thank you, O God, 
that there is forgiveness. We thank you, O God, that there is atonement and redemption for our souls. For in this, Lord, we have entered within the veil, and we now sup with you and fellowship with you in great intimacy. Lord, we thank you, for within the veil, we have seen your beauty. We have seen your goodness, your splendor, and your majesty. And today, once again, as we talk about your grace, we pray, Lord, that you will glorify and exalt your holy name. That people might know that you are the God of abundant grace, that you are the God of forgiveness, the God of salvation, the God of redemption, the God of deliverance. And so I pray, Lord, that I might be your mouthpiece once again today. Bless me with your Holy Spirit and bless the hearts of your people. Bless them, spirit, soul, and body. And Lord, whatever is going to be achieved today, we will give you back the glory, the praises, and the thanks. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen and amen. Now, as we study this particular psalm, we know that there are many fertile grounds that may cause us to be tempted to fall into sin. Now, some of those fertile grounds might be uh, frustration, it might be loneliness, it might be unanswered prayer, or it might just be that we are burnt out. Now, these prevailing conditions may cause us to be vulnerable to temptation. And I believe those things that I just described to you may actually be present right now during this pandemic crisis. Some of us might be frustrated. Some of us might be feeling lonely at this time. Some of us may have been praying for certain things, maybe for these past four months that we have been in quarantine. And so far, you have not heard from God. So far, there seems to be no answer to your prayers. Or maybe you're just feeling burnt out. Burnt out maybe because you have been doing certain things, uh, either uh, religiously or in the secular world. And because of that, you're feeling burnt out, you're tired, you're worn out. And because of that feeling or because of those feelings that you might have, now it seems like temptation has become irresistible to you. Could it be that some of us have sinned against God during this time of quarantine? Could it be that some of us have slowly drifted away from God? Could it be that some of us are rebelling against God right now? And some, us, some of us maybe might want to get back at God because of those unanswered prayers. And so friends, these fertile grounds have caused us probably to fall into sin. Now in the case of David, there were certain fertile grounds that caused him to sin against God. And those fertile grounds would be, number one, success. Number two would be idleness. 
And number three would be prosperity. Now, I do not know what conditions make you vulnerable to temptation. I don't know what fertile grounds cause you to sin against the Lord. Now, regardless of what, of what fertile ground causes you to sin against God, it is very important for us to own up to our sins. And once we own up to our sins, we need to come before the Lord in repentance. And as we repent before the Lord, the grace of God begins to abound in our lives. As the book of Romans says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That is the lesson that we find here in Psalm 51. But let me just share to you the conditions by which David fell, as I share to you 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, all the way to verse 4. It says in verse 1, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now I'd like you to observe certain things in this very first verse. It tells us that this was springtime, and springtime normally was the time when kings go out in battle. Why? Because those conditions, or the condition of spring in the Middle East is actually conducive for war. Why? Because it is not too hot. Number two, it is not too cold. Number three, it is not rainy, causing the place to be muddy so that it becomes difficult for chariots to be run in those plain grounds. And so springtime was always the best time for kings to go out in battle. But what happened here? Did David join his army? We are told here that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And then it says, but David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, why do you think David stayed at Jerusalem? Well, it was a case of overconfidence. And why was he overconfident? Because of the many military victories that he had. He was a successful king. He was a successful general. And not only that, because of the many victories they had, they were able to gather a lot of spoils coming from all these other nations, therefore enriching the kingdom of Israel. So David must have thought to himself, after all the war, the bloodshed, the violence, after all the, the times I've, I've gone out in battle, maybe I deserve a vacation. Maybe I deserve to have a furlough, a sabbatical, a time to rest. I need to relax at this time. It is now time to chillax. Probably that was the mindset of David, why he stayed on in Jerusalem. And so because of his overconfidence, because of his success, because of his prosperity, he became idle. 
And those very things now became the fertile grounds for him to be vulnerable to temptation. So let's follow through with our story. In verse 2, it reads, Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, we don't know if David just awoke from his sleep or if he was having insomnia at this time. Regardless of what the situation was, he felt it good to go up to his rooftop and maybe to look at his flower gardens. However, what happened was he was able to look Below And by the way, we've been able to visit the place where the uh, palace of David was. And in the palace where David was, there is actually a valley down there. And then from the valley, you will find in front of that a small hill. And so David must have been looking from that particular vantage point. And from that vantage point, he saw Bathsheba. Now, at that time, it was not yet sin for David to have seen Bathsheba because it was not his fault that he saw a woman bathing. But the problem was when he began to continually look at Bathsheba. And how do we know that? Well, it says in verse 3, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now, at this time, what do we see here? First of all, David should have stopped looking. When he saw this woman bathing, he should have stopped looking. But you know, he could not help himself. The woman was beautiful in appearance. He just probably woke up from his sleep. He was caught off guard. And so he just kept on looking and looking at the naked body of Bathsheba. And finally, the lust within him began to grow. And the thought of God became smaller and smaller in the eyes, in the spiritual eyes of David. And the temptation just became bigger until finally God was out of sight from the mind and the heart of David. Now, he could have confessed straight away after he had done that. After looking uh, uh, with a long length of time at the woman, he could have repented at the time. He could have confessed his sin. But instead, he allowed that lust to grow within him. And finally, he made inquiries about the woman. And then he discovers that this woman was married to one of his great soldiers, Uriah. And again, he should have stopped knowing that this woman was married. And knowing that this woman belongs to one of his faithful soldiers, Uriah. But sad to say, David did not stop. And so we are told in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, 
he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. And so sin was consummated. Adultery was committed. And later on, David finds out Bathsheba was pregnant. That is why we are thankful for this psalm because this psalm gave us a title, gave us a context of this confession of David. Allow me to read once again the title and the occasion. It says, A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So the occasion here was actually the rebuking of Nathan of David. Nathan rebuked David for this sin. Now before this, David wanted to cover up and hide his sin. He wanted to deny the sin. But the problem was Bathsheba became pregnant. And in her pregnancy, David must have thought, why don't I scheme and manipulate the situation so that Uriah could go back home to his house after battle and maybe he and his wife could have sex between them as husband and wife and then he would not suspect that the child that Bathsheba has is coming from David but his own child. That was the scheme of David towards Uriah. But that did not fail. That failed rather. Why? Because Uriah was a faithful soldier and he would not in any way go to his house because he felt that this was a special privilege that other soldiers who were with him did not enjoy. And so the plot thickens and now David seemingly has no choice. And this is where we see that he covered up his sin by having Uriah murdered. Now we will follow through with that story later on. But regardless of what fertile ground caused sin to blossom and destroy, and whatever fertile ground has caused you and I to sin against the Lord, we all have to own up to our sins. We all have to repent and confess our sins before God so that we could obtain the grace of God in our lives. Now this psalm is one of the seven poems that is called penitential psalms. In fact, it is considered the greatest penitential psalm among all. From here we will learn how to obtain grace when we fall. Let me share to you the outline. In verses 1 to 2, we find David's appeal for God's forgiveness. In verses 3 to 6, we find David's treachery against God. Now we can break that down into three parts. Verse 3 talks about David's guilt. Verse 4 talks about David's confession and agreement with God. Verses 5 to 6 talks about the root of David's sins and God's desired fruit. The third point we find in verses 7 to 15, David's confidence in God's grace and second appeal for forgiveness and full restoration in verses 7 to 15. Under that, we have confidence in grace, 
in verse 7, and then in verses 8 to 15, appeal for full restoration, and then in verses 16 to 19, God's delight. Now, this is a rather long psalm, and so I've decided to break it down into two parts. So what I will do is I will talk about the first two major points, and then for next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the last uh, two uh, major points. So we will divide it into two parts. So what we will have right now is part one. So let's dive in right now, and let's talk about David's appeal for God's forgiveness in verses 1 to 2. Now, one of the things that you will note in this psalm is what is called as parallelism. You find line one and line two being very similar. Now, this was a method that was employed by many Hebrew writers for emphasis. So you will find this all throughout the psalm. You will find parallelism all throughout. So line one and line two is similar. We find this in verse one, for example. It says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. And then, notice line two, According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now, David knew that in the face of his utterly odious sins that he had committed, against Bathsheba, against Uriah, and most especially against God, he needed the grace of God in his life. And perhaps many of us who have sinned against God are feeling as guilty, as filthy, as dirty as David was feeling. And let me just tell you this, our only hope as well is the grace of God in our lives. Now it says here, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Now what does loving kindness mean? It means God's covenant love expressed in faithfulness. God's covenant love expressed in faithfulness. And this is something we can continually rely on with the Lord. For as long as we have this relationship with God, we can expect God to continually forgive us of our sins. As 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now we know that the sins that David committed were heinous crimes. There were crimes worthy of capital punishment in the Old Testament economy. If you committed adultery in the Old Testament, it should be punished by death. And the same thing is true when it comes to murder, it should likewise be punished by death. And so here David understood the penalty of his sins, the penalty of his sins was death. And isn't this true as well for all of us in the New Testament? The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23, For the wages of sin is death. Do you know that every time you and I sin against God, we are deserving of death. Now some of you might argue and say, but 
I did not sin in the same way that David did. David committed adultery. Mine is just lust. Or maybe you might say, well, David committed murder. Mine is just hatred. So why should I be faulted by God? Why should I deserve sin as well? Well, friends, those who say that have not heard or have not read what the Lord Jesus Christ spoke about lust and about murder. Or I'm sorry, about hatred. And I'd like to bring you to that particular passage because in this passage, we will see that Jesus equated lust with adultery and he equated hatred with murder. Have a look at Matthew 5, verse 21 and 22. It says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So what did Jesus just do here? He is saying that if you commit hatred, you've already committed murder as well. So what Jesus is saying is hate equals murder. And of course, some of us would protest and say that's not the same. Well, friends, when you and I argue in that way, we are speaking in human terms. We are speaking from a human perspective. And may I remind you that our human perspective has been tainted by our own sinful nature. And that is why we have this tendency to continually exonerate ourselves and justify ourselves. In fact, in the case of some people, instead of owning up to their sins, they would blame others for what they have done. Do you not recall what happened in the case of Adam? When the Lord confronted him with his own sin, he resorted to blame shifting. And he said, it is the woman you gave to me. Now his blame shifting was twofold. He was not only blaming his wife, he was also blaming God. Because he said, it is the woman you gave to me. And oftentimes, that is what happens in our case. But friends, in the very presence of God, there are no arguments. And that is why I recall the story of Job. Initially, he was complaining and saying so many things against God. But when he came face to face with God, when it was God who was beginning to question him about certain things, he finally became silenced and he repented in ashes. The same thing is true in the case of Isaiah. In the very presence of God, remember Isaiah was already a prophet. But when he had a vision of the holiness of God, what did he say? Woe is me, woe is me, for I am a man 
of unclean lips. When we come before the very presence of God, there are no arguments. Now, in verse 27 and verse 28 of Matthew 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what did Jesus just say here? He said that lust equals adultery. Some people think there's nothing wrong with pornography because after all, you are not consummating the physical act of adultery. However, the Bible is very clear that when we lust for another woman, if, you're, if you happen to be married, or even if you lust and you're single, that is already equated to either fornication or to adultery. It is a sin against God. And once again, we can justify ourselves, we can exonerate ourselves, but God is saying, this is it. And no arguments with God. We simply have to own up our sins and to confess them before the Lord. So without exception, whether you've committed the actual physical act of adultery or you have lusted after a woman or you have committed murder or you simply hated a brother or a sister, we are all in need of grace. And what is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. Grace is unmerited favor. And that is what you and I need. And we are thankful to God that He is more than willing to give that to us. I recall the Lord Jesus Christ from the Mount of Olives as He was looking upon the Temple Mount, upon the whole of Jerusalem. He was saying, Oh Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I would have wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. And the Lord Jesus said, You have missed the day of your visitation. And sadly, there are many people out there who are like that. Jesus is reaching out to them to extend grace to them. And yet, they would not want to hide under the security of the wings of God's grace. But friends, we all need grace. You need grace at this time. Now David said, blot out my transgressions. You know, the word blot out signifies erasure. Yes, God can erase our sins. The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. The book of Hebrews says He will no longer remember our sins. He can erase those sins. He can delete those sins that you and I have committed. And then in verse 2, David continues on with this appeal and he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now the picture of wash here is clothing being removed of its stains through water. Interestingly, the Bible is also symbolized as water. 
And when we come face to face with the word of God, if we submit ourselves uh, with the word of God, the word of God can be the very instrument by which we can ask God to wash us from our sins. And that is what we need to do. And then David says, cleanse me from my sins. Cleanse, by the way, is a technical term used in the Old Testament for the cleansing of a leper. Now, leprosy, of course, was a despised and dreaded disease. Because you could become an outcast when you had leprosy. And that was how David saw his sin. He saw the ugliness of his own sin. He despised his own sin. He hated what he had done. This is how David felt. He felt that he had spiritual leprosy. And we need to be thoroughly cleansed, my dear brothers and sisters, from our sins to be accepted in the very presence of God. God cannot simply condescend to us without our repentance, without our confession. Confession is needed. Repentance is needed. And we need to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. We need to accept the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse and wash us from all our sins. Then and only then can we be accepted in the very presence of the Lord. Now this is how David came before the Lord. Now under the Old Testament economy... What was provided for were animal sacrifices. This, however, was only a temporary provision until the coming of Jesus Christ who would provide a permanent provision for the forgiveness of our sins. I'd like to quote to you Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, all the way to verse 14. It says, By this will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. By the way, let me stop here and let me explain something. In the Old Testament, the priest never sat down. The priest was always standing up. And it signified that the work of atonement in the Old Testament economy was never completed. Because people continually sinned. And people needed to continually have the atoning sacrifice of bulls and lambs and goats. They needed that continually. And that is why the work of the Old Testament priest was never completed. But then Jesus Christ comes and it says again, look at verse 12. But he having offered how many sacrifices? One sacrifice. That is all that is needed. To atone for all of our sins. One sacrifice for sins for all time. The efficacy of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is for all sins. Past, present, and future. And it is effective 
for all time. There is never an expiration date when it comes to the forgiveness of our sins. If only we entrust ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now why did the Lord Jesus Christ sit down? He sat down because the work was completed. The work of salvation was completed. That is why Jesus Christ, in one of the seven last words, said, It is finished. Meaning, it's a done deal. Meaning to say, it's completed. No work needs to be added. My work is sufficient. My work is adequate. My work is completed. All you have to do is receive the free gift of salvation. All you have to do is accept the fact that only my blood can cleanse and wash you from all your sins. That is the message of the New Testament. That is the message of the gospel. And look what verse 14 says. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Did you hear what that says? Through this one offering, we are perfected. Now we have been made perfect positionally in the very presence of the Father. That means when God the Father looks at us, when we have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, He sees not sinful Mel. He does not see sinful James. He does not see sinful Bruce. He does not see sinful Eric. He does not see sinful Angelica. What God the Father sees is the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ has washed us clean. Now if you have a look again at the three terms that David used in verses 1 and 2. He used three words. Blood, wash, and cleanse. Blood, wash, and cleanse. And that's all we need to do. Come before God in repentance and say, blot out my transgressions. Tell God to wash you from all your sins. Tell God to cleanse you from all your iniquities. And He will forgive you. He will cleanse you of all your sins. Now in verses 3 to 6, we find David's treachery against God. Again, Note the parallelism that you will find. Line one is the same with line two. And that is designed by the Hebrew poets for emphasis. So we find in verse three, David's guilt. Notice the parallelism once again. For I know my transgressions. That's line one. Line two is, and my sin is ever before me. Now David knew that he was in sin even before Nathan confronted him. He may have attempted to deny it, conceal it, hide it, forget it. But it was staring him every single day in his face. What Nathan simply did was press hard on David's nose this sin 
that he had committed against the Lord. Now, as a sidebar, one of the things that I admire here in the case of Nathan was that he was, he was courageous. He was not afraid to confront the king. And he was not mincing words at all. He was totally uncompromising. And so I truly admire what, what Nathan did here because he could have lost his life. They could, David could have imprisoned him or he could have cut his head. But no, David was, or rather Nathan was uncompromising. Now when he was confronted, David owned up his own transgressions. He did not engage in blame shifting. Notice, he said, my transgressions, my sin, my iniquity. He owned up his own sins. He did not engage in blame shifting. He did not say, it's the fault of Bathsheba. She should have been more circumspect. She should have been more careful. She should not have taken a bath during the nighttime when I was walking on the roof. David did not do that. He owned up his own sin. Now I know some people engage in blame shifting. If only to stop themselves from feeling that guilt. But you know what? No matter what we do, we cannot conceal our sins before God. We cannot justify our sins before God. We cannot exonerate ourselves. Now in verse 4, we find David's confession and agreement with God. He says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now David knew that he sinned against Bathsheba, that he sinned against Uriah, he sinned against his own family, his own wives, his own children, and he had sinned against his own nation. But ultimately, David knew that his sin was against God. And ultimately, brothers and sisters, whatever sins we commit, although we may commit sins against our wives, our husbands, our children, our neighbors, our friends, ultimately, all the sins that we have committed in our lives is against God. And you know what? All sin is sin against God, and God is always the one who is most hurt, who is most pained when we sin against Him. I like what the Liberty Commentary states. It says, God is always the ultimate target of sin. God is always the ultimate target of sin. That is why David did the right thing when he acknowledged his sin against God. And by the way, in the parable of the lost son, the Lord Jesus Christ gives us the method or the way by which we make confession. It's quite interesting that the prodigal son followed the pattern of David. We know that the prodigal son sinned against his own father. But notice his confession in Luke chapter 15, verse 18. It says, this is what the prodigal son said. I will get up 
and go to my father and will say to him, listen to what he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Did you see that? He did not say, Father, I have sinned in your sight and against heaven. But rather he began by saying, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned in your sight. He sinned against God, first of all, and secondly, only to his father. That is always true of all sin. All sin is sin against God, first of all, and ultimately. I'd like to share to you what the book of Genesis likewise affirms. It says, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God, he made man. So this verse, this verse affirms that we sin first of all against God. That is why David says in verse 4, the last part of it, he says, So that you are justified, referring to God. You, O God, are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge so notice here what happened in the case of david he never argued with god he never blame shifted he owned up to his own sin and he said lord everything you said about me is right i am wrong you are right and i will not justify my sins i will not argue with you anymore you are justified when you speak you are blameless when you judge David agreed with God when he was rebuked and chided by Nathan the prophet. And we find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. As Nathan used a parable to rebuke David. Let me read. It says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd, to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, what was Nathan trying to do here by using this parable? Nathan was actually making a comparison between David or an analogy between David and Uriah. That was the point of this parable. So the hope of Nathan was for David to open his eyes and see himself in the case of this oppressive man. David saw what was wrong in this parable. Notice his response in verse 5. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, 
Surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. David was riling against this man. He saw this man as sinful. He saw this man as oppressive. He saw this man as unjust. And then the knockout blow comes from Nathan. Notice what verse 7 says. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Israel. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if it had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. Have taken his wife to be your wife. And have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. When Nathan spoke those words to David, David had no arguments. David was silent before the presence of the Lord. And he confessed his sin. And friends, that is what you and I have to do. Every time we fail God, every time we sin against God. Now what is the root of David's sins and God's desired fruit? We find this in verses 5 to 6. First of all, let's talk about David's and mankind's problem. It says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Now notice the word begins with behold. The word behold is calling our attention to something which is very important. When David said, in sin did my mother conceive me, he was talking about the sinful nature that you and I have inherited from Adam. Because of this sinful nature within us, we have this natural propensity to sin. And how do we know that we have the natural propensity to sin? Every time there is a commandment given to us, we have this natural propensity to go against what we have been commanded. And one good example would be this. When you see a sign which says, keep off the grass, sometimes it becomes very tempting for us to step on the grass. Or when we see a hole on a fence, and then we see a sign that says, do not peep. The temptation is for us to peep into that peep hole. Why? Because it is our natural propensity to sin. Every time there is a commandment, there is a tendency in us to go against what the Lord commands. Now this natural propensity to sin, we can call a congenital depravity. It is stated in Romans 5 verse 19. It says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. 
Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It says, for through the one man's obedience, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We have inherited the sinful nature of Adam. And that is why we cannot save ourselves. We are impotent to change ourselves completely. We need the help of God. Compounding that problem is God's holy requirement. Look at what the requirement of God is. In verse 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Again, we see the word behold, calling attention to something very important. The root problem of all our sins is contrasted to God's holy requirement. What God requires is sincere, honest, genuine righteousness within us. Honest, sincere, genuine righteousness within our hearts. That is what God requires. We can do something good outwardly. But the question is, does that really reflect the genuineness in our hearts? Maybe not. We can do certain things out of impure motives. We can do certain things out of convenience or out of compliance or out of obligation, out of duty. But that is not what God wants. God wants us to serve Him with gladness in our hearts. And that is simply impossible with a sinful human heart. The Bible says, be ye perfect as the heavenly Father is perfect. So how can this problem be solved? This problem can only be solved by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which I mentioned to you in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are told that our sins will no longer be remembered by the Lord. But not only is that the benefit of making Jesus Lord and Savior, God will likewise give us another nature, His divine nature, that will overcome the sinful nature that we have within us. And we find this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That is why the Bible says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, the new has come. And then it says, partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. As I close, let me ask you this question. Has this pandemic crisis caused you to sin? And have you sinned against God because you're frustrated? Because you're desperate? Because you are lonely. Because you're depressed. Because there are some unanswered prayers. You've been praying for a long time. 
There seems to be no answer coming. Could it be that you're burnt out already? Maybe with all the cooking in the house. Maybe with all the household chores. Maybe you're burnt out just thinking about this pandemic crisis. Could it be that it has made you vulnerable to sin against God? So what should we do if we have failed the Lord at this time? What do we do if we have stumbled and fallen? What do we do if we have drifted away from God, rebelled against God? What do we do? We do it David's way. The way of confession. The way of owning up to our own sins and repenting. And the grace of God abounds in our lives. I hope that this would serve as an encouragement to all of us. Shall we bow our heads and close our eyes? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for this blessed time you've given us, Lord. Thank you that in the midst of our greatest problem, the greatest virus that has hit this world, sin, there is a solution. And the solution is the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come to you and ask for forgiveness for all of our sins. And for those of us who have not yet accepted you as Lord and Savior, we can do so right now. And all our past sins will be forgiven. But not only our past, but even our present and future sins would be forgiven. And so we thank you, O God. We thank you, dear Lord, that there is hope, that there is grace. And whatever has been achieved today, we give you back all the glory, praises, and thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.